Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chen, and with me I have Kevin Dong, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster-affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hello, everyone. This month, we've got a bit of a shorter episode relative to most of our others uh, recently. Teaching the Accounts and Residence Corner will be back uh, in the short term as we record a bunch of new content. Today, we've got a main segment with Lisa Calder who just recently, as of uh, August, I believe, became the CEO of the CMPA. The conversation stands quite well on its own as Dr. Calder imparts wisdom upon us from her various life experiences as she's transitioned through various phases in life. We'll forego the usual summary at the end. However, I would recommend that residents listen to this in the context of where they see themselves even 10 or 20 years down the line in practice and how they might best stave off the effects of burnout and maintain balance in life. Following that, we'll have a couple of our new contributors and new FRPGY1s, Ben and Lauren, discuss some tips for CARMS applicants in the coming year. This will end up being a multi-part segment over a few episodes. With that, I'll turn it over to Teresa Chan and Lisa Calder. Hello, everyone. So I'm here with Lisa Calder, who is an associate prof at the University of Ottawa. Uh, she's a trained EM physician who has recently transitioned to full-time research director position at CMPA. So we're really excited to have her here, actually, for our November research day. So we have two research days. We have one for the CCFPM residents in May, and we have one in the fall with the FR residents. And kind of that's been going on for a little while, but we're really excited to host you for either one of them. And so thank you very much for coming. And really excited to have you on our podcast, actually, as well. Thanks, Teresa. I'm really excited to be here. And thank you for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to speaking at Research Day. And I'm also really looking forward to seeing and hearing about the research that residents are doing because I'm kind of known as the person on Research Day who gets super excited and enthused by all the amazing work that residents are doing. Because you can see when the spark kind of hits people and they get it and they're actually feel like they're making a difference. It's super cool. All right. So uh, let's dial back time a little bit, because I'd love to hear how you went from a rock star clinician that, you know, like emerged doc extraordinaire, but then transitioned now to kind of more full time research gig. Like, how did you even get started with research? Let's dial back time to when you first started. I had a really, really early start in research, like high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a co-op placement at the Heart Institute oh, lab. Wow. I was like, <laughs> you know, freezing rat lungs and hearts mm-hmm. and, you know, worrying them in the yeah. blender and working with those. And I liked it. And that caused me to do another research experience as a summer student in undergrad. But mm-hmm. that time I did clinical research. So I worked with Paul Hebert, mm-hmm. who's a pretty famous critical care physician researcher. And he was the one who really hooked me into epidemiology. Ah, I see. So you got bit by that research bug really early. And so what did that mean to you when you were going through, you know, medical school residency? How did you integrate it in? 
Uh, it means a lot of things. I think one of the things that I've always loved about research is that it satisfies my sense of curiosity. Mm. Constant learning, constant being able to look at data, make sense of it, understand more. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I knew, and this is what Paul Hebert and I spoke about actually, was he talked mm. about longevity in your career. Mm. And what he said was he said he was a huge believer in being a clinician scientist, so working as a clinician, identifying the problems, and then being able to solve those problems mm. as a scientist, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But he also talked about how at different stages in your career, you can use that as a pressure valve. Mm-hmm. So there may be times where you need to feel like you're going to step back from a clinical for a while and do more research, or other times mm-hmm. when you want to be more in clinical and do less in research. Mm-hmm. And that was quite appealing to me. I like the idea of that flexibility. Mm-hmm. So it was something that I always bared in mind throughout my career mm-hmm. was I can use this to help me have a, a long career in medicine, mm-hmm. uh, which is a you know subject that I'm passionate about. Yeah, and I think that we're increasingly having that conversation with both our CCFPM graduates and also our FR graduates who stay around these parts is that, you know, having some other gig uh, that you can go to when you've just worked four shifts in a row can be really nice because sometimes the excitement of Emerge isn't always there and sometimes it just gets you down a little bit. Like... You know, we joked earlier about how I might have had one of the best shifts that I ever had today. So like today I'm like clinical. I can do clinical for the entire weekend and then I will do clinical for the entire weekend. At the end of that, I will not feel that way. Um, and so I think that there is, um, a limit to the amount of extroversion you might have, for instance. I think that our shifts, there's, there's a certain performative value in the merge doc. You know, I go from, resuscitating and calling time of death in one room and then like having someone yell at you another and then having to cheer up a little kid who has a boo-boo on his chin and each of those things you're trying to be yourself but you kind of have to perform a little bit so I can see how you know as an immersed doc that can wear over time right I think what I observed too is that oftentimes when we choose to go on emergency medicine and you ask people why they want to do it the majority of people who are entering residency not all but the majority don't have kids, right? They're, you know, young, healthy adults where Mm -hmm. shift work doesn't seem like a big deal, right? (laughs) Because I can sleep anytime I want. And it makes complete sense at the time. And there's so many things that are awesome about it as a clinical discipline. And I remember being warned, like, you know, as you get older, shift Mm -hmm. work gets harder. And I was sort of like, no, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And then then you hit the wall, you're like, oh, my God. So I think there is part of that. And I've certainly seen in mentoring people as well that There's definitely times in careers where people need a break, be it a sabbatical or what have you. I think that's really healthy. And I've watched people who were, if not burnt out, at the edge of burnout, do that in whatever way they want to do. Like you said, whatever gig or whatever break you, whatever you build that in and come back completely re-energized back to their former selves. Right. And I think that's, I think the challenge with that is that we are not often reflective enough to realize, am I in that place yet? Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that people in burnout never know they're almost at the edge of, you know, where they are going to fall off the edge. And I think that that's one of the things. It's kind of like the Dunning-Kruger effect about competence, but it's almost in the reverse. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm not yet burnout. I'm, I'm just a little crabbier. I'm just a little bit more cranky. I'm, my, my, um, attention span is a little shorter. My temper is short too. And, and all these things. And if you have reflective, 
colleagues and friends、mm. and loved ones. They can maybe show you a mirror and try to like shine the light back in your eyes. But again, sometimes if you have your eyes closed to it, you can't see it. So I think that's really wise kind of、uh, commentary around how you might need the other things. I think for me, the reason I like research so, so much is sometimes, you know, like in the emergency department, I guess I made the analogy on another podcast about how. My favorite game as a kid was Tetris because the pieces keep coming faster and faster. You have to be more efficient. You have to get it done.、Um, but at some point, you just fall apart there. And so Tetris is a no-win game, right? You can't win. That's the whole point of Tetris is that something's gonna fall apart. And so, isn't it nice to go from that to playing tic-tac-toe against your like five-year-old cousin sometimes and and winning? And so, I find in research, even though it isn't necessarily like you can stop because there's always the next question, but there's periodic breaks where you like have. Those successes, where it's like I got a paper accepted, nice,、um, and you know, like oh, something got published, that's awesome, right? And so I think these are the opportunities that you have when you do something more scholarly. So tell me about transitioning from practice into full time. Do you miss it? What's what's it like? I get asked that a lot.、Mm-hmm. A lot of people say, "Do you miss emergency medicine?" And my answer is always, "Yes, of course." There are things、mm-hmm. that I miss, and you know what's interesting is what the things that I do miss.、Mm-hmm. I miss resuscitation. I miss、mm-hmm. working with my hands,、mm-hmm. uh, and I miss the team. I'm working with、mm-hmm. like and you and I were talking about this earlier.、Mm-hmm. To me, like I always love those shifts where you're working with a team. And everything is just flowing, right?、Yeah. It's that state of flow they talk about in high <laughs>、yeah. performance sports. It's exactly the same、yeah. thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Like everything is slick, and all, all the cylinders are rolling, and it just、yeah. feels so good. That I yeah. miss. Yeah. There are a lot of things I don't miss. Yeah, I don't miss walking into a waiting room of fifty people with an、mm-hmm. eight-hour wait time.、Mm-hmm. I don't miss, even though I worked actually a lot of nights and I really enjoyed my nights. I don't miss nights anymore.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't miss working weekends. I don't miss working holidays.、Mm-hmm. I don't miss having patients yell at me. I don't miss having security walk me to the parking lot because I'm concerned that someone's going to follow me. Right?、Mm-hmm. Like there are things like that. So、yeah. I think. I actually hired a career coach to help me with that transition,、okay. and the one thing she really helped me with was recognize the difference between nostalgia and a feeling of something you have to fix.、Mm-hmm. And so, for me, recognizing that I was transitioning to a different phase in my career where I'm using my skills in a totally different way, super exciting.、Yeah. And yes, I miss my previous phase, but you know what? I think I did a good job.、Yeah. I think I made an impact. I made a difference. It was great. And just because I miss some things doesn't mean I have to go run back to it necessarily. Because actually,、yeah. I'm loving what I'm doing now, and that's、yeah. okay. Okay. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. I think for any situation where you have a different phase of your life that you're trying to go on to, so you see that with retiring physicians, right? They're probably better off if they think that they are moving on to being a great granddad or grandma, right?、Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the more successful physicians in our group have transitioned elegantly, have had a new. Phase in their life, they're like, oh, I'm going to carve out doing this thing, and I think that that's something that、um, is really important. So whether you're just doing a mid-career pivot like you have done, or you are heading on into that later stage of maybe being more emeritus, like Jim Christensen and I met up at a conference, and he's stopped clinical, and he he was reflecting to me, he's like, I, I. I don't miss it in many ways,、um, but I have a purpose. Like he's doing that BC Health Network thing, and it is a beautiful work of technological art.、Uh, the idea of connecting all of those emerge docs all across BC. They have their、um, uh, pods in every rural community hospital, where they can teleconference in and get teleresuscitation assistance, and it's province wide. So I mean, that's a huge endeavor for him to take on, and I think he's just really loving that pivot into that.、Uh, That new career that he's carving out, 
And I think that for me, like in terms of this career transition, it always feels like a leap, right? You're mm-hmm. moving into something new. You don't know what it actually is going to be like. I certainly had a lot of people who were giving me all these warnings, like you're going to hate nine to five and it doesn't have the tangible payoff. Like emergency medicine has a very tangible payoff, right? Mm-hmm. Like to your point, like you could resuscitate, save someone's life. I actually like just suturing a laceration and patients. So mm-hmm. thankful for that, right? Yeah. Like that's a very tangible, immediate payoff. Research isn't that immediate, yeah. but for me, and it's not true for everyone, right? But what, why this transition feels so good for me is that I was pleasantly surprised at how fulfilled and how much I enjoyed leading a national patient safety research program. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. has been a phenomenal experience. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. had it not been, we probably would have a totally different conversation. Yeah, yeah. But because mm-hmm. I am and loving what I'm doing so, right, mm-hmm. so much right now, that mm-hmm. really, that facilitates the transition, right? Yeah, for sure. And, and it's interesting because I met another guy who transitioned from radiologist in Canada to being like the head of Amazon Web Services, genomics and healthcare sector. I'm like, that's a big change, right? And mm-hmm. so, I mean, he's loving it though. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, shout out to Shaz Patovi for, for also being one of the guys that I met over at BC when I was there recently. But, uh, it's really interesting to hear people's transition stories. And so, you know, like, I think it's really nice that we train a long time, whether it's the three year route, the five year route, the super slow and steady, you know, plus you know, a couple of years of research or your fellowships or whatever. But, sometimes you can come to the end of an error and that's okay because if you have something cool to move on to, I don't think you have to hold on to the things prior as much. And the other thing too is that, so I'm going to speak about this tomorrow. There's for me, there was definitely elements of serendipity and I don't think I'd be nearly as good in my job right now. Had I not had all the experience Mm -hmm. as a clinician Mm -hmm. uh, and my training and all Mm -hmm. of those things. I mean, I bring all of that with me to this position. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that, my second theme, I'm going to speak with three themes. It's going to be about serendipity, choice, and balance. And when it comes to choice, one thing that I notice in mentoring a lot of residents and junior faculty members is sometimes we don't think we have choices. I think particularly in academic medicine, because mm. the paths are laid out so clearly mm. that it's like, oh, now I go here, and now I go here, and now yeah. I go here. And yeah. that's a very linear path. Yeah. And so that uh, what I see, unfortunately, is people feel even trapped. Like they have no, they think they have no choices. And yet they're not looking at it as what are my skills? Yeah. And what could I do with the skills? What's the realm of possibility out there? Yeah. And the answer is a ton. Yeah. And in particularly, I think what's yeah. unique about us in emergency medicine is we actually know the healthcare system in a very unique way. Yeah. Because we get to see how hospitals interact with community. We get to see how different consulting services interact with us. So we can appreciate the perspective of an orthopod, a trauma surgeon, an ICU you doc a family Mm -hmm. doc right so Mm -hmm. that gives us a very unique ability to see a broader context Mm -hmm. that if you're in a sub 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 specialty you may not have that Mm -hmm. perspective yeah very very interesting and and if you're a community-based physician you might not have the exposure to the hospital and so i think it's really interesting to see how different perspectives can give you different insights and you can take those with you yeah, I mean, I think that one of the biggest things, you know, it's not like we want everyone listening to the podcast to be like, oh, I want to go find another career. But but it's just sometimes validating to hear that it, there is life outside of the emergency department. And if that's something you want to pursue, if it's an opportunity that knocks at your door or it ends up being something that you keep thinking about, 
maybe it's time to explore it a little bit. I'm sure at the rate that we're going with the Cape uh, forecasting of how short we're going to be, uh, we can always welcome you back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that will be a problem. And so I think uh, finding ways to diversify your impact in other ways is, is also a very cool thing f- to consider. Right. So whether that's sometimes enter into politics, I've seen people pivot there. I've seen people pivot into um, organizational kind of mandates, such as what you've done in, in establishing kind of more national presence with research and quality and patient safety. I think that it's just really cool to see what different people do. Yeah. And I think, again, that I, I was uh, presenting at the University of Ottawa Department of Emergency Medicine resident retreat a couple months ago. And one of the residents asked me, because I mentioned that I I was always a five-year goal person, right? Like I would have it on my wall in my office. These are my five-year goals. And I would have a pie chart. This is the proportion of time I'm going to spend being like the best mom I can be, the best wife yeah. I can be, the best emerge doc, the best teacher, the best researcher, blah, blah, blah. Goals are important. And I'm, I'm a believer in goals. Mm-hmm. The problem with goals, though, is if you've honed yourself in so narrowly that you can't see outside it, yeah. it it's that tunnel vision can be problematic. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I talk about the serendipity, right? Mm-hmm. So when mm-hmm. it comes to being able to see choices, mm-hmm. part of it is those choices come to you, but yeah. part of it is having the openness and receptivity to that. Yeah. And even if it seems like a complete 90-degree turn... And that was one of my lessons with this transition was that this opportunity for me knocked at my door four times before I actually went for Mm -hmm. it. So, and that was mentors like pushing me and saying, why are you not applying for this job? And in my head, I was like, because that's not what I want. I'm not ready for that. And they were like, this was written for you. Why aren't you doing it? (laughs) (laughs) And so that was a big lesson for me, right? Because they, and when I mentors, he said, call me, let's talk about it. And he said, you have nothing to lose by applying for this job. If you don't want it, don't take it. Yeah. You can always turn them down. Just let them try to try to woo you. Yeah. And yet there's a common, Mm -hmm. and this has been well demonstrated in business, a difference Mm -hmm. between men and women, Mm -hmm. which is that when you look at a job Mm -hmm. position and let's say there's five criteria, Mm -hmm. women always feel they have to meet every single one of those five criteria before they apply. Whereas men will have two out of five and they'll still apply for it. Mm -hmm. And that was, again, in this instance, I did actually ironically meet all the criteria, but I still was doubtful. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so it was my mentors who were like, I believe in you and this is made for you and you should do this. That really gave me that push. Mm -hmm. And so now that's what I look for opportunities when with my mentees is when I see opportunities, it's like, you may not have thought of this, but just look at it. Yeah. Right. And what do you have to lose? I was just listening to Casey McKenzie, who's one of our PGY1s, and Sean Mondu, who's one of our assistant profs, kind of level, I guess, technically junior faculty. And he's, uh, they were just talking about the scoping review that I co-wrote with them, which is around coaching and mentorship and how those terms are blurred. But I would actually proffer that maybe what you're doing and you're talking about having done to you is that's just sponsorship, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's the idea that someone's nudging you, opening, opening things up. They're not just reflecting back at you like a coach. They're not just telling you what their experience was as a mentor. They're actually like, no, 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 no hold on. There's a door. I want you to walk through it and then you can walk back if you want, right? Like right. the idea of like two way doors. Absolutely. Like, um, they talk about in the tech industry that, um, Let's say at Amazon, if something's 80% good, they'll be like, why did you wait till it was 80% good? We should have walked through that door. It's a two-way door. We can walk it back. Like we can decode something. And so I think thinking about those opportunities as you can always come back. The emergency department will probably be still there. And it's the Canadians love their emergency department. So it's not like we're going to be out of business anytime soon. So, And that's the other advantage of us in terms of our careers, right? And our skill sets. And that 
one of my big learnings over the the course of my career, because I had two maternity leaves, I took the two longest maternity leaves in the history of the department each time I took my maternity leaves. Mm-hmm. But uh, I took six months for the first mm-hmm. and I took 11 months for the second. Mm-hmm. And But what I learned from those leaves, because I didn't work clinically during that time, I did hardly any research during that time, I learned what it meant to transition back into practice. Yeah. Yeah. I learned A, that it was possible, mm-hmm. and I also learned how to create a transition plan back mm-hmm. into practice, which mm-hmm. I still to this day feel like is not enough attention is paid yeah. to it. But it's not rocket science, right? right? So tell me what you did. So what I did, and <laughs> it's funny looking back on it, because this was back in the day when we didn't have a sim center or anything, mm-hmm. right? right? But in my head, the two things that I was concerned about, one, I was concerned about my technical skills. Mm-hmm. And the second I was concerned about was like new policies, procedures that I didn't know anything about. Mm-hmm. So the way I addressed those was at that time, no sim center, but we had our ACLS teachers. Yeah. And so I just like messaged one of them and I said, hey, can you we just get together with some mannequins so I can intubate a bunch of them and do a few chest tubes and lines and just so I feel comfortable? Joe Kozar, he was so lovely. He said, yeah, absolutely. So we went on a weekend. Mm-hmm. I did a bunch. And all I need to do is like, you know, like four intubations. I'm like, okay, I'm good. Yeah. Right? And yeah. a couple of chest tubes and a couple yeah. of lines. And that's all I needed yeah. to have the confidence to feel like yeah. I can walk in and feel like I can do this and not feel rusty. Yeah. The second thing I did was I shadowed some shifts. Yeah. So I chose some carefully selected colleagues who I really respected Mm -hmm. and who I felt I had that ability to trust to say, I just want to hang out with you for like a portion of a shift so I can get my head back in the Mm -hmm. game. Mm -hmm. I'm not here to criticize or evaluate Mm -hmm. or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I just am going to shadow you as Mm -hmm. you see each patient so I can go through in my head what would I actually do. Mm -hmm. And that's how I learned, okay, so how do we refer to ID Mm -hmm. now? Mm -hmm. And how do we, all these things that had changed in the term of my leave. So again, Mm -hmm. when I walked back into my practice, Mm -hmm. I was able to Mm -hmm. not feel like I'd been away forever. Yeah. And sure, there were still things like drug doses that didn't come to the tip of my fingers. But guess what? You can look up the, the, most of them most of the time, right? So, mm-hmm. but that tra- that really facilitated that transition. So I've guided a few people through a similar mm-hmm. process mm-hmm. Um, since then. And now that you have sim centers, it's even more of an amazing opportunity because there's so many things you can mm-hmm. practice in sim where you can get back into that comfort yeah. level, right? Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Um, locally, we've had a couple of people all go on not leave the same. So they actually wrote our some of our sim instructors and then we booked a private session with them. And I'm like, awesome. this is probably something that's really useful for a lot of people Yeah, um, who might have been on sabbatical or they might have been off sick. We can't yeah. always look at how we can incorporate that skill. Yeah. Um, and I think they really had a really good time, too. So that's yeah. awesome. Right. But uh, and, I, and yeah. some of the residents I've coached through this transition back from mat leave mm-hmm. as well has been about also intentionally seeking feedback. Yeah. Right. So when you go back, first of all, acknowledging for yourself, you know, you're not going to be the same as your peers and that's okay Mm because no one should expect you to be. Mm -hmm. And the second part then is, well, what are your gaps? Because Mm -hmm. you won't have lacoons everywhere. There's going to be a couple of areas, but intentionally find out what Mm -hmm. are my gaps? What do I need to work Mm -hmm. on? How do I fill those? Mm -hmm. And then it makes it manageable. Mm -hmm. It's not like, oh my God, I don't know anything. You you actually know a lot and you you surprise yourself with how much you remember. It really kind of is like riding a bike. It's very similar. Mm -hmm. And then... I, I think though it's really key for people to feel that confidence mm-hmm. that they've they're prepared that they have some control over like how I'm re-entering and so that I mm-hmm. can go in there feeling like I can do the best that I can. Okay, very cool. So I'm going to transition you back to that third thing that you wanted to talk about, which was balance. Yeah, and I think that that's something that a lot of us struggle with, whether you're a man or woman or identified differently. Um, I think that balance is something that as grown ups. <laughs> universally we're probably not good at (laughs) so talk to me a little bit about what your insights are about there 
So what I've learned about balance is back to that image of me in my office with like my pie charts and five-year goals is I literally used to think this was a box to check. Like I'm balanced now, check, (laughs) right? (laughs) And then I rapidly learned that that's not true. And so it's very, it's very dynamic. Mm -hmm. And I also, I've read, um, I've particularly seen on Twitter people talking about work-life integration, mm-hmm. and I actually push back against that concept. And mm-hmm. the reason I do is that mm-hmm. to me, and, and, my, and again, this is just my experience, but actually boundaries are really important. Mm-hmm. And boundaries between work and personal life are actually really hard in emergency medicine because of the nature of our, sh- our uh, mm-hmm. shift work. Yeah. And in academic medicine, it's further mm-hmm. compounded mm-hmm. because the model is that Everyone's doing email when they can do email, right? So you come home mm-hmm. from your shift at two in the morning, you do an email till four, and then you go to bed. Yeah. And yet, by doing that, even though you're thinking, great, I'm checking off all these things, yeah. you're creating conditions amongst your team, amongst your yeah. peers, an yeah. expectation yeah. that if you don't answer me in a certain time period, like, what's up? Yeah. What that means, though, is that it's 24-7, essentially, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it's very hard yeah. to achieve that unless you set certain boundaries. Mm-hmm. So... I think, and the second thing, I've had some interesting conversations lately with some Emerge colleagues Mm -hmm. where someone said to me, I'm just not a reflective person. And I found that a really interesting comment Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. one of the conditions for us in emergency medicine to function, you were mentioning this earlier, is actually, I believe, to suppress a lot of our emotions and to suppress a lot of our physical instincts, right? So just to be able to survive and function, you can't go pee when you want to all the time. You can't go, you can't eat when you want to all the time. Mm-hmm. And likewise, to your point, if you just broke bad news to someone that their dear loved family member just died, then you have to walk in and listen to someone with their laundry list of complaints, like their toenail is bothering them. Mm-hmm. That requires a certain level of suppression. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a survival function and I get it. The challenge is again, if that bleeds into all of your life mm-hmm. and you're always suppressing stuff all the time, yeah. you're not reflecting, you're not aware of what your needs are. You're not aware when you're out of sync and you're out of balance. You're going to explode someday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's really figuring out how do you access that? Mm-hmm. How do you actually find the time to reflect? And everybody's mm-hmm. different in terms of their approaches. I found meditation extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. How do you tune into what your body needs, what you need emotionally, mm-hmm. what you need spiritually, mm-hmm. what have you? And then mm-hmm. how, how do you prioritize that? This is a big theme in a lot of literature around moms in particular, working moms mm-hmm. across disciplines, is the idea that if you can't be a great mom unless you take care of yourself first, and that's actually very counter to our Western culture, mm-hmm. right? And it's also counter towards the altruistic, self-sacrificial model of medicine. Mm-hmm. So it kind of compounds itself. Mm-hmm. So and it's I, not even talked about in collectivist cultures, right? Because you, there is no self in in a lot of these things. So it is something that is counterintuitive to most people, I think. And yet, back to the idea of career longevity, and back to the idea that it's not so much I don't think about how will how and when will I achieve balance mm-hmm. it's more recognizing when I am so far out of balance I need to make some changes and that could mm-hmm. be I need to look at how my shift complement is and I need to change something up right mm-hmm. or that could be I need to look at how how I'm prioritizing time with my family or I need to set some boundaries around my academic work so I have some time to do some things for myself and it's not easy but what's interesting is that when you start and when I transitioned this career and I started setting boundaries mm-hmm. I saw some big differences in terms mm-hmm. of how I felt I had more balance than than imbalance. Mm. Yeah. I think the shift work, the um, the fact that you can't often schedule yourself, uh, that you're working around something that was given to you, all of that is is a certain level, level of chaos that makes it hard um, for a lot of us 
And so even if you love your scheduler and carry English, we love you. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> that is not the complaint there. It's just that even, you know, there's a certain amount of anxiety waiting for that schedule to drop. Yeah. Um, and that you can then you plan your life around it or that you hope that the things you blocked off because everyone else didn't block it off too will be respected. Right. And these are the things that are uncertainties and the lack of control can sometimes eat away at you. So balance probably comes from also a certain amount of agency over um, being able to control your schedule and control your life. So, yeah, I think it's absolutely true. And I think the other thing I always remember, I had some amazing emerge colleagues in Ottawa who treated their work life balance, like high performance sports. And so by that, I mean, they really looked at how to optimize their performance clinically and their performance personally as a human being. So for them, that meant that they religiously protected certain like, you know, sleep times, like napping pre-shift, for example, Mm -hmm. that they were religious about the types of snacks they had Mm -hmm. pre-shift and during and all those things because, Mm -hmm. and these guys were athletes. And so they just get transferred that in here, Mm -hmm. but you could see, and it's funny because I used to make fun of them (laughs) and now I totally get it yeah. because they're actually optim- – that's human factors, right? They're optimizing their performance yeah. by looking at what they need in terms of sleep, looking at what they need in terms of nutrition, looking at what they need in terms of like, psychological breaks and prioritizing yeah. that. Yeah. And there are so many things, I think, also, again, in the academic world where our expectation is for us to achieve all these things on top of our clinical work mm-hmm. that there's no room for optimization. Mm-hmm. But, but think about what you could actually achieve if you do mm-hmm. manage to key into some yeah. of that optimization. Yeah, that would be really interesting. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been lovely to chat with you. And uh, we'll look forward to having you again on Mac and Merge Podcast another time. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Hey, all you Mac and Merge listeners. I'm Ben, and I'm one of the new Mac Merge FRCP PGY1s. And I'm Lauren, another one of the new Mac Emergency Medicine R1s. Now, we're going to be doing a reoccurring segment on the Mac Emerge podcast for the next few months. Ben and I are going to be doing a Mac Emerge CARMS takeover. Call it CARMSCast, if you will. Over the next few shows, we will be sharing some tips and tricks for application season and talking with our program directors and chief residents about what the CARMS process is going to look like in the era of COVID. Now, big caveat here. Surprise, COVID-19 was not as big a problem when Lauren and I were going through the CARMS process last year in the winter of 2020. And the CARMS of last year is going to be very different from the CARMS of this year. Regardless, we are going to do our absolute best to be your guides to the virtual CARMS process. And there are a couple of things in particular to be on the lookout for. First up, we'll walk you through getting ready for your application writing those personal letters, and the importance of peer review on those personal letters. Trust me, it takes a lot of time, but it's so worth it. And after you've submitted your applications, we'll work through that ever-important interview prep. And during actual interviews, we're going to talk about what you should be looking for in a potential program. Of course, we're biased and we think Mac Emerge is the best, but it's important that you look for yourself at what you want to get out of your residency. And finally, when everything is all said and done, we'll talk you through the things to consider when you're putting in that final rank list. All this and more will be coming up on the Mac Emerge pod, so stay tuned. So, it's October 2020. 
The CARMS timeline for the 2021 match starts with applications opening on November 2nd of this year. Which means in October, you can't start filling in that CARMS app quite yet. But that doesn't mean you can't start thinking about what you'll be putting onto that application. We're going to be talking about two things today that you can get ready with that November CARMS opening on the horizon. First, finding stories. And second, beginning to work on that resume or CV. Let's start with those personal stories. Now, this was probably the piece of advice I got the most heading into early application season. Prior to writing your personal letters and down the line practicing interview questions, it can be really helpful to create a list of impactful stories or cases that really speaks to what you love about Emerge. Now, these can be cases from the emergency department, on your clerkship rotations, or in other clinical settings. But what we really want is for them to be impactful. This makes it interesting for the listeners and readers, and it makes it so much easier for you to talk about. Maybe there was a case that really captures why you want to pursue emergency medicine. Or maybe there was a case that validated your interest in Emerge. It could have even been a really tough case that you had and how you went about dealing with it. These questions get tricky in a setting with such diverse patient encounters, but at the end of the day, it's what makes you unique as an applicant. And no worries if you don't have a journal of cases so far. Just keep it in mind as you work through your remaining rotations. Remember, those CARMS applications aren't due until 2021, so you should have lots of clinical time to think about these stories. So light a candle pour yourself a tea, and really dig deep as you reflect on exactly what brought you here. Now, let's move on to that second point. And if you're like me, you may not have been keeping your CV up to date in medical school. Honestly, Ben, that is perfectly fine. The old CV was certainly something that got away from me as a med student. But as CARM starts to open up and you need to start asking for reference letters, as well as filling in that pesky CARM's online profile, Getting back up to speed with your CV can be a great thing to get a head start on. And remember at this point, it's going to be a rough draft. Your CV will be going through many iterations. I know when I was going through CARMS, I broke down drafting my CV into two parts. The first was the long list. This was absolutely everything I could think to write down, all compiled in one place. That high school play you're in? Keep those on there. That one-day event on sun safety that you led in your undergrad, that's staying too. The long list isn't a place to be picky, but to be thorough. Once you feel like you're in a good place and you've exhausted all of your experiences on the long list, then we recommend switching gears to the formatted CV. Now, my formatted CV was a two-step process. Step one was content. What experiences do I think are relevant? And this is for each specialty you're applying to. If you're applying to emergency medicine, it might look a bit different than your CV for obstetrics and gynecology. Step two on the CARM CV formatting process is the visual component. How does my actual CV look? This is where I thought about things like fonts and spacing and number of pages. The specifics of what the final copy will look like whether that be length or the experiences that make the final cut, is going to be different for everyone. I don't know that there's a hard and fast rule here, which, as a side note, is probably going to be the line that you're going to hear the most in these CARMS vignettes, but unfortunately, it's pretty true. 
Some things I would keep in mind with the CV are what experiences I want to focus on. Here, I'm trying to highlight my interests and show commitment and growth over time. Ben makes a great point there. While we aren't privy to the specifics of how CVs are reviewed for every school, we can guarantee that every application is going to be one of a ton that actually gets looked at. A helpful question to keep in mind when you're writing your CV up is, if I was a reviewer reading through this quickly, what are the main themes that would jump out at me? Identifying those themes early can be helpful in terms of deciding what to include, but also reflecting on your strengths as a candidate. Now, this is also going to come in handy down the line when we chat about interview questions and personal letters. For example, Ben and I were really interested in medical education as medical students. And as junior residents, we still are, of course. Exactly. So when we were applying, we both looked for experiences that spoke to an interest in medical education and grouped them together on our CVs. Our hope was that a reviewer could see pretty quickly that it was an area of interest and was likely something that we were going to continue into residency. Likewise, when we wrote about these interests in our letters or spoke about them with interviewers, reviewers could easily reference that section of the CV that put the whole picture together. Think of all these puzzle pieces in your CV, but they all form you as the applicant. And it doesn't have to be medical education. Mental health, POCUS, critical care, it's whatever makes you, you. Poetic, Lauren. Another pro tip is to start entering your CV manually into the CARMS portal early. This is easy, mindless work. October is a great time to get the boring stuff out of the way. And let me tell you, entering all that data takes forever. So toss it in now and get that momentum started knowing you can go back and change it at any point. For sure. It's also really helpful to get over that initial anxiety of opening up the CARMS website. I know it still sends a shudder down my spine when I see that lowercase CARMS font. I knew the CARMS website better than I knew my own friends and family. On that cheery note, how about we wrap up that session for today? Okay, CARMS wasn't all that bad. It was great. But you'll spend a bit of time on that CARMS website. That's for sure. And by the end, it'll be fabulous. So that's all about we have to get you started. Check in with us next time when we break down working on those personal letters and some other high-yield tips. Peace. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge Podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out!